pay heed. The Lord, the Lord Jehovah, has given unto you these 15. Ten, ten commandments for all to obey. Famous errors of human history get the Mel Brooks treatment. Listen as we chat about which leaves to suck on, a continuity error with Jesus, and when the internet isn't real life. Then we find out if History of the World Part 1 stands the test of time. Time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with the blood Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Test of Time podcast. My name is Alan Noah. Your name is James Brief. You know that, and our listeners know that, unless it's the first time you're listening to our podcast, in which case you don't know that. So hello, I'm James Brief. This is a podcast where we look at uh, movies that are either quite old or at least 15 years old, and we see, does it stand the test of time? Does it still hold up today? It's like the history of the podcast, part one. No, that doesn't make any sense. Well, I (laughs) guess it would be like history of movies as they're seen today. Uh, This would be part 300 and something or other. 48. Wow, 348, almost 350. Um, And, you know, Al, there's a tradition that we've done uh, the last few years, uh, and that's where we make our box office predictions. Right. You predicted The Little Mermaid to be the number one film of the year. Uh, I predicted Indiana Jones 5, uh, The Dial of Destiny. But neither of us picked a movie on the top three that I'm going to say, I'm not changing my vote. We only, you and I make a rule. We only get, you know, one one chance to do it. But unofficially, I think The Flash is going to do pretty well. I could see it doing well. I don't know that it'll break the top three. Top 10, sure. Top five, maybe. The trailer during the Super Bowl, I know you don't watch trailers and I won't spoil anything, I promise. But they were really emphasizing characters other than the titular Flash. And I wonder if that's because of Ezra Miller's real life problems. Or maybe the Flash is just not the biggest hook that they want to sell for the movie, but it didn't really make me think like, oh yeah, this is going to be huge. You know, um, I think uh, this movie is actually going to do well for a couple reasons. One, I happen to think that it's going to just be a good movie because it's directed by a guy, uh, Andy Muschietti, Pretty much his first big films were uh, It and It Part 2 or It Chapter 2. Um, another thing is, yes, it's a nostalgia machine. And one of the biggest uh, hits from last year uh, was Spider-Man uh, No Way Home. And the number one thing that they quote unquote were not advertising, but it was the worst kept secret in all of movie history, is uh, the fact that there were three Spider-Man in there. The movie happened to be good. And also everyone wanted to see their past heroes. And 
I think they're going to show Batman. I think they're going to show a little bit more than they're teasing right now. I think there's going to be some easy crowd pleasers here. And I think that maybe I, I overestimated the controversy about Ezra Miller. I think while it will certainly be talked about, I think in the end, I think if it's a, a good film, I think that probably the film will uh, be successful and will be able to relaunch the entire DC universe. Well, I mean, the DC universe is being relaunched whether this movie does well or flops. It's kind of independent. Um, well, it'll narratively relaunch the DCU. I think the Flash gotcha. is actually going to explain why the next uh, Superman is not going to look like Henry Cavill and why, uh, you know, there's this guy that doesn't look like Ben Affleck, the guy that we know is Batman, but, you know, of course, it's Michael Keaton. There's a lot of fun to have with that. I think it could be a good film. It, it also just made me think... Uh, you know, sometimes the internet is not exactly uh, accurate on what is real life. I'm not even talking about the Ezra Miller controversy and whether or not this should be canceled or what Ezra did was right or wrong. I, I honestly, I don't even really know much about it. I just know it kept being arrested. I'm just saying, I don't necessarily think that the uh, you know box office and business uh, necessarily follow what uh, happens on Twitter. Uh, very recently, uh, Louis C.K. Uh, sold out Madison Square Garden. You had a video game, uh, Hogwarts Legacy, that you know, there was a lot of controversy because uh, Harry Potter's creator, J.K. Rowling, has been very controversial and very loudly controversial and talks of boycotts online. Yet the uh, video game did very well just because, you know, real life doesn't really always reflect what's uh, talked about online. Well, I think there's a couple of different things there. I mean, I think it's one thing to criticize J.K. Rowling as a person and to still love Harry Potter as a fictional creation and the books and the movies and this video game, which I have only heard amazing things about. Like, you can separate those two things and understand that a lot of people worked very hard on this video game and J.K. Rowling, I'm sure, will make some money off of it if you buy it. I'm sure she gets a, a couple of cents or a buck or however much. But it's not like purely lining her pockets. And whatever you think of Ezra Miller, a lot of people worked very hard on that movie. So there is an ability to understand nuance. Did you read that thing that came out about the um, the Snyder Cut where Warner Brothers themselves commissioned this like deep dive investigation into the uh, hashtag restore the Snyder cut movement that was online. They discovered that this huge trending topic of we need the Snyder cut restore the Snyderverse. It was only really a handful of super fans and they like manipulated Twitter with bots and their knowledge of the algorithm and all this shit, basically, to make it seem like this was what the fans wanted. It wasn't like a huge giant movement. It was really just a handful of nerds that were really good at Twitter. Absolutely. And I mean... uh you know, we've learned about uh, politically the uh, the bots from parts of the world that can be, you know, just invading our Twitter space and just riling up sentiment in this country. It's amazing what a handful of people can do. And you really learn that you know, real life is not what you see online. 
I think there's also just like a lag between the people who are really, really good at manipulating Twitter and Facebook and algorithms and and all that shit versus the people who make decisions in the news media. Maybe I'm speaking from a little bit of personal experience, but people see something trending on Twitter and they think, oh my God, everyone is talking about this. It's very easy to get sucked into that as a big deal when it's really not. I remember there was a thing I read years and years and years ago about how this one guy was really good at manipulating the Facebook algorithm. And you know, like you can make targeted ads on Facebook. He made a targeted ad just for his roommate. Like he targeted this one thing to one human being and he did it as like a prank on his roommate, like as a gag. Mm -hmm. But if you have sinister intentions, you can do real damage. And those Snyderverse guys didn't cause any real damage in the world, but they got Warner Brothers to spend millions and millions of dollars on a director's cut that didn't really need to be made, that people weren't really clamoring for. That's kind of shocking and amazing and impressive, but like, you know, in a bad way. I think people need to take the lesson that you're saying of like, yeah, just because you see it over on the side of Twitter and it's trending, that doesn't mean millions of people actually give a shit. Right. If uh, if the internet was the real world, then it would be President Bernie Sanders. And I'm just saying I think The Flash will be uh, popular. I think it will uh, do well because I think it's going to be a good movie. We shall see. But let's talk about History of the World Part 1. This was a movie that we had on the list for a very long time, and now History of the World Part 2 is coming to Hulu. I think it's like eight episodes over four nights or something like that. I saw the trailer for it. I thought it was very, very funny. But had you seen History of the World Part 1? I did. Um, This is a film that I know exactly when I saw this film. My sister, uh, Joanna, a friend of the show, she rented this film with uh, her friend Vanessa. I remember thinking this was funny. I only remembered one part of it, and that was the Moses scene, which I thought was hysterical. And I saw it years later, and I've seen bits of it here and there. Yeah, I think I've seen this whole movie through once before. Parts of it seemed familiar. Parts of it did not. I was somewhat into Mel Brooks. I wasn't a huge, huge fan. My dad loves Mel Brooks. Like, that's like his kind of jam. And I really, really, really love Spaceballs. I saw that movie a million times. I saw Robin Hood Men in Tights many times. But like Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, High Anxiety, I think I've seen all of those once, maybe twice. Um, I agree uh, with you. I've only seen one Mel Brooks film many times, and that would be Spaceballs. And this would probably be my number two Mel Brooks film because I've seen it enough times sporadically. And I've never seen his two classics. I've actually never seen Young Frankenstein or Blazing Saddles. We will get to those at some point. I've seen The Producers, 
Which one? The original, not the uh, not the Will Ferrell one. I saw the one with uh, Gene Wilder. Um, and then those 90s ones, I only saw Robin Hood when I saw for this podcast. Was he involved with the Dracula, Dead and Loving It? Yes, he, he wrote and directed that, yes. Yeah, I never saw any of his other ones. Um, so I would not say I'm a huge Mel Brooks movie aficionado, but I am a fan of Mel Brooks. As a person? Yeah, he's great. And this movie, for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's his comedic look at history. There's a handful of vignettes where he lampoons prehistoric cavemen, ancient Rome, the Spanish Inquisition, and the French Revolution. You see that Moses originally carried 15 commandments. You see how to identify a eunuch in a harem. And you even get a glimpse of humanity's future with Jews in space. Space, 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 space. I meant to look it up and I forgot, but you would know. Have there ever been Jews in space, like Jewish astronauts? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Elon Ramon, uh, he was an astronaut that uh, unfortunately died with the, uh, the fatal uh, Columbia crew back in 2003. So there have been Jews in space, but uh, not flying Stars of David spacecraft. Yet. 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 Now, this film was released on June 12th, 1981. Interesting trivia in the history of uh, movie history. Do you know what other uh, historic film, and historic, uh, pun intended, historic film was released on that same date? I know because I read it earlier today, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's right. And that wound up being the number one film of the year worldwide and, you know, one of the greatest films of all time. This film opened at number two. It opened with $4 million on its way to $31 million. So, you know, it didn't generate enough money for History of the World Part Two, certainly at the time. But uh, I don't know if it was meant to actually have a part two. Uh, but, you know, I think the thing at the end is more of a joke. Yeah, it was kind of like a Mel Brooks kind of gag. I mean, he made a joke years later that he was going to do Spaceballs 3, colon, the search for Spaceballs 2. And he never did that. And there was a story about how someone asked him, what's your next movie going to be? Something big? And the first big thing he could think of was, yeah, the history of the world. And then someone said, well, that's a little too big. And he said, okay, fine. It'll just be part one. And it's also maybe based on this historical book that some guy was writing called History of the World, part one. And then he was executed before he could write part two. So it's it's a gag. It was meant to be a gag. Of all of the things that could get a Lega sequel, you know, this one kind of does make sense. It's like built right into the title that there could be a part two. Well, also, if there ever was a candidate for a reason to revive something, it's yes. literally the history of the world. I mean, the source material is endless. Exactly. So it's completely fair game. But um, the tone of this film really shifts a lot. Like the beginning of the film that starts with the cavemen, and I, I always forget that it starts with cavemen because uh, I, I only know the more famous, you know, Inquisition and French Revolution parts in Rome. But uh, it kind of almost seems like a parody of those old film strips you would see in uh, in school or 
like you know PBS kind of things. Like it has the very Orson Welles narration. Mankind used to be this way, then they were another way, and then they tamed fire. You know, it's kind of boring, but uh, the visuals are much more funny than the uh, you know monotonous uh, narrator. That was a terrible Orson Welles impression, just so you know. Well, I think to do an Orson Welles, all you have to do is do a a brain, right? Yes. Well, that's what we do every night. Try to take over the world. That's Maurice LaMarche. That's the voice actor who does Morbo and Calculon and a lot of voices on Futurama. He also did Orson Welles on The Critic. And I was wondering if they might have him doing his Orson Welles impression in the new History of the World Part 2. I don't know that he is i haven't like seen that announced anywhere but like they could because you know the real orson wells is dead if they wanted to have an orson wells sound alike he would be the guy you'd call oh absolutely based on the music that was playing uh the score did you uh recognize what movie specifically mel brooks was parodying well i think it's not only the score but he's very clearly aping 2001 colon a space odyssey Right, right, right. Did you see what I did there with aping? That was pretty good. That is, that is. Uh, you know, that whereas Stanley Kubrick does this incredibly long-winded, but very intellectual, silent film where the prehistoric men, they take the bones and they slowly learn how to use the bone into a tool and the hammer. And then he throws it in the air. And then you imply that, you know, what started as a bone over the next 10,000, 100,000 years, becomes eventually space station tools. Basically the same thing as the bone, but just a little more time. But Mel Brooks, he's like, and then man became not just animals, but this is how men act. And then suddenly they're just kind of like humping each other. They're masturbating. Yes, yes, yes. They're masturbating. I think like they just start like humping the rocks and stuff. And like, it's pretty funny. Um, There is a lot of 15-year-old boy humor in this film. A lot of it. I think that's fair. And I mean, especially like the the caveman part, it's very like set up punchline, set up punchline, set up punchline. It's very, very quick. I wanted to ask you, because this part of the movie features Sid Caesar. Do you know who Sid Caesar is? Uh, No, I don't know who that is. So I'm not really super familiar with him. He is considered like a legend in the early days of television. And I... I only really know him because when I worked at NBC, when I was a page, he came on the NBC 75th anniversary special, and it was a really big deal that, like, this TV hero legend was going to be in the building, and they were going to have him on this show, and one of, like, his main, like, things about him that made him funny was he would do, like, these crazy faces, and he would just kind of, like, talk in gibberish, And people in the 50s loved it. They thought he was hilarious. But they brought him out in 2002 to do his bit from the 50s. And he was just kind of like standing on stage, making weird faces, speaking in gibberish without any context or setup. And it just kind of looked like he was having a stroke. It was like really painfully unfunny. I'm not familiar with him and his history and all of the amazing, wonderful things he's done, 
but it was just like if this guy is a legend they did not respect his legacy with that 30 second bit it was really terrible well, you know, comedy, with the exception of some stuff, some bits that might be absolutely timeless, you know, occasionally you have a who's on first kind of thing. But, you know, as you could see from professional comics, like they have to change their act. Uh, a singer can keep doing the same song for the rest of their life. You know, we've seen ourselves that things that are quote unquote comedy classics to people in, say, our father's generation are not necessarily going to hit. Some things will. But not necessarily, and almost without exception, not entirely going to hit us the same way. Right. And along those lines, I thought a lot of the cavemen jokes didn't really work for me. I mean, some of them were mildly amusing. You know, like the first artist does a cave painting, and then the first art critic comes along and pees on it. Eh, you know, okay, a little smile, a little chuckle. I didn't think a, a lot of those jokes were, like, really funny. I agree that they were uh, low-hanging fruit. I kind of took the humor in a much darker way than maybe it was intended because I have done papers, and I've thought a lot about this early period of humanity. Basically, when we first learn fire versus when we tame fire, like, there must have been so many deaths before you figure out, oh, if we just place stones around the fire, that reduces the amount of deaths greatly. And when you look at some of these people that uh, live off the land and they're like, ah, you have to suck on the uh, these certain uh, leaves and that will cure your headaches. Yes, they figure that out correctly. But do you realize how many leaves that they had to suck? And when they realize like which mushrooms are bad to eat, you realize people had to die before they realize that these mushrooms are bad. And my point is that that is a true part of human history, and I kind of took it in, like, the Mel Brooks kind of dark humor, and they're, like, learning about spears, and they're like, oh, this thing will kill them. Huh, that's kind of funny. So it's not that funny, but if you would take it in a way that I don't think he meant it, it is kind of dark humor funny. Yeah, I get it. It just didn't really, like, make me laugh out loud. I think, really, the first time I laughed out loud was the Ten Commandments bit when— Moses is carrying the 15 commandments. Oops, he drops one. Okay, 10 commandments. It's a very, very simple gag, but that made me laugh out loud. Exactly. It almost makes me think that there were like five minutes of Moses things and they just weren't that funny and he just cut it down. Apparently that was like a very last minute ad. They just had the cave sets that they could redress to do something else with them. And Mel Brooks just had this idea for the one Moses joke and they shot that. So it wasn't like there was a ton more than that. They only shot that. That's fantastic. And I also love that it's specifically parodying uh, Charlton Heston's Moses because he's dressed in basically the exact same outfit as the Ten Commandments. And, uh, uh, you know, he has the same white beard. And, you know, there's some very specific movies that they're referencing in this film. Yes, yes. But let's move on to ancient Rome. I think that's probably the the longest segment of the movie. I thought that some of the just sight gags in ancient Rome were really, really funny when he walks by a V and X scent store 
that made me laugh out loud. As a joke, I don't know if that really stands the test of time. I remember when I was a kid, I don't think we even had five and dime cent stores. That's the Roman numeral joke. I remember my mom used to refer to a store nearby as the five and dime, but it wasn't called the five and dime. I think real actual five and dimes were gone by like our childhood. Is it Brian Adams or John Cougar Camp? Like who sings about that God at the five and dime? Brian Adams in the summer of 69. It rhymes. Right, right, right. Exactly. So from the reference there, I assume it's some kind of general store, but I've never seen a five and dime and I missed that gag, but I did love some of the other uh, sight gags. Uh, I mean, it's not a sight gag, but they did correctly put the, you know, the V was in a lot of places. So one guy goes, you are nuts. N-V-T-S. Nuts. <laughs> I-, I thought that was funny. Did you see the orgy and buffet sign? First served, first come. But no, no, I, I, I did. Uh, I didn't see that. But um, there was a test of time joke there. There's a naked woman there, and some guy's painting her, and he says, "I just invented something." The centerfold. It wasn't some guy who said it. It was Hef. Hugh Hefner in a cameo says, I just invented the centerfold. That's true. That's true. It is uh, some guy named Hef, Hugh Hefner. And I would argue that your son's generation will not know what that term means. I think that's fair. I think the centerfold was a huge deal when it was invented in the 50s and 60s. And we knew about it in the 80s and 90s. But yeah, Playboy is officially out of print. And I think now centerfold is just uh, about the Jay Giles band song. Right, right, right. Uh, There's another part. I remember this from, at some point I'd seen this, the Empress singing the orgy song. Caesar's wife is, she's going to pick the men for her orgy and in march in like 30 centurions and they don't have any pants on. They just have their tops on. And she just sings like, no, no, yes, no, no, yes, no, no, yes, yes. And points to the men. And, you know, it it kind of turns the tables on if it was a man doing it to women, you wouldn't really see any humor in that. But the woman doing it to the man, it, it was pretty funny, especially with the Roman centurions. You're seeing the top of their asses and it, it's just low hanging fruit. It's like, oh, look, it's their butt. It's funny. I mean, she's looking for the low hanging dick, I guess. I don't know. There, there, there's a joke in there about low hanging fruit and they're penises. I, I don't know exactly what the joke is. Well, they said uh, she made rather big choices with her selections. Right. And I think, of course, I remember liking that because I was probably like, you know, a kid and I thought that was pretty funny. You were a kid who appreciated a good dick joke? Well, yeah, I mean, it's pretty funny. Sure. I laughed out loud when they're on the run and they go through the Senate and there's like a senator saying, what are we going to do? Are we going to do the right thing? Are we going to help the people? And then they all vote, no, fuck the poor. And he's like, good. I thought that as like a gag was pretty funny. I think that probably does stand the test of time. Whether you think that about the U.S. Senate right now or not, that just seems to be like a fairly timeless gag that the politicians will always vote to fuck over the poor people. 
Uh, I mean, ancient Rome literally was doing this stuff, the, the senators versus the uh, plebes. And, you know, it was basically fuck the poor. That definitely stands the test of time. We have records that they did it then. Uh, they they certainly do it now. So, yeah, that, that joke was very funny. And just the way they said it, because you almost thought it was going to be one of these, uh, we're the Roman uh, Republic and we're going to do good, because that's what they're talking about as the, uh, the narrator is like, ah, the birthplace of, civilization and blah 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 that just the way that they smile and say we're not going to build houses but fuck the poor yeah it still very much stands up yes definitely gregory hines is in this part of the movie this was his first movie that he acted in and of course he tap dances and does an amazing job also very funny um, this character was supposed to be played by Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor was unavailable because he had lit himself on fire at that famous uh, freebasing incident, right? He was freebasing and he set himself on fire. Not only did he set himself on fire, uh, you know, it was a horrible incident, but what should have been the end of him because he set himself on fire and it was due to illicit drug use at the height of the so-called war on drugs. Yeah, that should have been the end of his career, but Richard Pryor turned that into his bit. That became his 80s uh, huge comeback. Yeah, the, the late Gregory Hines, he was fantastic in this movie. Can you name the other movie we saw on this podcast with uh, Gregory Hines in it? No, I can't. Uh, what else has he been in? He was in the Muppets Take Manhattan. He played a roller skating uh, guy. The Muppets. He, he's on screen for like one minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, as a kid, there was this one movie that I was obsessed with, and it starred Mikhail Baryshnikov and Gregory Hines, called White Knights, and it was about like. The airplane has to land in the Soviet Union and they have to do some kind of ballet or dancing or something. I don't know why I loved it. I think it's because of the time I was also very into Lionel Richie. Say You, Say Me was in that film. But that's why I knew Gregory Hines. I always had a soft spot for him because he was in this movie I loved when I was like five years old. Interesting. Um, one other gag that I wanted to call out in ancient Rome that really made me laugh out loud was when they see Oedipus and he's like walking around blind and Gregory Hines says to him, oh, hey, what's up, motherfucker? Get it? <laughs> oh, that's pretty funny. Oedipus, motherfucker. I mean, that's low hanging fruit, but it made me laugh out loud. And, uh, there's always the famous eunuch test. And Gregory Hines, he's trying to hide out, but he's hiding out in front of uh, some eunuchs. And the Roman who's chasing him goes, eunuch, eh? And they have this beautiful woman do like a belly dance in front of all the eunuchs. And they don't respond. And Gregory Hines, he watches this dance. And then the feather on his little skirt rises up. And I thought that was very funny as a kid. Right. Um, The Rome scene ends with Mel Brooks's character as a waiter in The Last Supper, which was a funny little bit where, you know, he just kind of is there with Jesus and he keeps saying, Jesus! And Jesus is like, yes, whatever, it's fine. But earlier when he's in Caesar's palace and he's making all of these jokes for the emperor, he says something about like, what about this new sect, the Christians? They're so poor, they only have one God. But then later on, 
he's meeting Jesus at the Last Supper. So I think you're not supposed to think about it and you're not supposed to wag your finger as a stupid little podcaster and say, mm, then is a continuity error. But like, that is a continuity error, right? I don't think they had water slides in the Spanish Inquisition now that I think about it, too. There's at least two flaws in this film now, Al. No, there are <laughs> other things that are clearly anachronistic, and that is I the know, joke. I know, I know. Yeah, I see what you mean. That that random Jesus joke would have been better as just a random insert. Yeah, it just kind of felt out of place. And it's fine. It doesn't matter. It's not worth like nitpicking. I, I shouldn't have even mentioned it, but I did. Whatever. Um, Let's talk about the Inquisition. Have you been singing the song? I've been singing it since I watched the movie. The Inquisition. What a show. Yeah, I mean, yeah. absolutely. I mean, the Inquisition is the horrors of horror of like the worst things humanity's done. And Mel Brooks has somehow successfully turned this into an incredibly catchy Rodgers and Hammerstein musical jingle. And it's not just a jingle. It's like a full production with like singing and dancing and choreography and a Jackie Mason cameo and all of these things. So the underlying subtext of this musical farce scene is that trying to convert people who have a different religion than you is ridiculously stupid. That is pointless. You're not converting people. You're not helping people. You're not spreading your religion. You're murdering and torturing people for no fucking reason. Like, they never say that out loud, but that's sort of like the subtext. That's the underlying message. However, I was thinking about it from a 2023 lens, and I am not an expert on this, but it seems to me like anti-Semitic attacks and hatred are on the rise. Maybe they're at the exact same level as they were in 1981 when this movie came out. I don't really know. But I think the way that it could be modernized would be to just basically keep the same scene pretty much exactly as it is, except I think they could make it be more about the people who are doing the torture and the murdering, who are trying to convert the Jews, just so you could have a slight angle, a slight twist where you're saying, the people who do this, they're fucked up. They are wrong. The people who are killing the Jews, they have their own problems. You could do it in a comedic way. Make it fit with the rest of the movie. Make it a dick joke. Make it where Torquemada is saying that he's killing all of these Jews because he has a little dick and he heard that if he kills enough Jews, he'll have a bigger dick. And then he kills some Jews and then he looks down and says, nope, still small, better kill some more. Like, just so that you are making fun of the anti-Semitic people, you know, like, I, I feel like that would be how you would modernize it. I don't know. You think I'm overanalyzing? I might be. Well, I mean, he was doing a, a number about something that's absolutely horrific, but it's dark humor. Right. I'm just saying, like, I think today that would be more of the angle he would take. I'm sure there will be jokes in History of the World Part 2 that have a perspective on something relating to the Jews. Mel Brooks does that a lot. I just think what you want to do is make it so that you are mocking the people who are attacking the Jews. Mocking the people, not just the institutions of converting people in general. 
Well, I'll say this. Um, there are Jew jokes that you can make, such as when Moses, when God says, can you hear me, Moses? And he goes, you know, a deaf man can hear you, for goodness sake. That's the old Jewish man kind of humor. That, that, that's funny. You could go edgy, certainly. There are probably not going to be depictions of Jews being tortured and killed in part two. I don't think that's what they're going to do. So right. uh, I think more the sensibilities of today, but I think the humor he was going for then was still just like, look at these ridiculous people, what they did. And he's making a musical number. He's the guy who made a musical about a gay Adolf Hitler in uh, the, the producers. This is his shtick. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that's definitely his brand. All right, well, let's move on to the French Revolution. This is the first time where Mel Brooks says, it's good to be the king. I know that line from Robin Hood, colon, Men in Tights, but this is the first movie where he says it, and he says it three times. Yeah. You know, this is another thing where I watch it and at first I go, oh, this is such disgusting humor because it's funny because he digs his head into a woman's bosom and, you know, he just looks to the camera, breaks the fourth wall and says, it's good to be the king. Again, looking at it with a dark humor, so many of these noble people, they were such disgusting pigs to the peasant people and the commoners that this is exactly what they did. You know, of course, everyone knows Marie Antoinette's famous, possibly apocryphal uh, phrase, let them eat cake. It wasn't untrue that there existed a palace of Versailles while the people were starving. It's funny to show, yeah, they get their comeuppance. Unfortunately, in this film, it happens to be the the lookalike that gets its comeuppance. But uh, you got to set up that these guys are pigs so that you sort of support the revolution. Right. Along the lines of they are pigs, when they're like doing the live chess game and then the king says, oh, let's all jump on the queen. Is that supposed to be a rape? I mean, there's literally 20 people sandwiched on top of themselves. I think if we're talking practicality, I don't think anything is happening on the bottom there. But <laughs> um, yes, I, I do think that this is the king calling for the uh, for something like that. There is definitely an assault on the queen, certainly. That's so stupid. Why? Like, just don't have it be a rape. Have the queen be into it. Have the queen say, come and get me or something. Yeah, I get it. They're pigs. Yeah, they're terrible people. That's the whole thing. But like, I don't know. Is that necessary? Some of the stuff was, it's good to be the king. That obviously, I think, was very much showing I'm a piece of shit. Like, even a king today, King Charles can't do that. But, uh, you know, King uh, Louis the something, he, he could do that. And these guys got beheaded. I mean, look what's happening in France right now. I mean, France can't deal with their living conditions. They shut the place down. Like, all work will stop. They will not tolerate that. Things operate very differently in this country. But, yeah, in France, they will chop off the king's head. Right, 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 right. No, they don't fuck around. Um, the mademoiselle who, like, is begging for her father's life. Did you recognize that actress? No, no. Who was that? That is Lorelai, the blonde from Superman 3. Oh, Lorelai that turns into a—no, doesn't turn into a robot. She's the other one. Right. Like, like she acts all stupid, but she's really, really smart. Yeah, same actress. 
Pamela Stevenson is her name. And, you know, the French Inquisition part ends and answers any question of whether or not you're supposed to take this film seriously, because just as the main characters are about to all be beheaded by the guillotine and they yell, it'll take a miracle to save us now, out of nowhere comes Gregory Hines in full ancient Rome attire, riding the horse Miracle, and they escape on their chariot. It's obviously a gag. It's, you know, maybe, you know, 1,500, 2,000 years later. Who cares? Just shut up, and that's the end of the film. Well, almost the end of the film. I think I remember that, that, like, the hero from one of the other stories comes to rescue them at the end, and it's an exact callback of, only a miracle can save us now. When they do that in the Roman Empire section— They've set that up. They meet the horse named Miracle earlier in that segment. So it's not a deus ex machina. When it happens at the end of the French Revolution, it is a deus ex machina because there's no logical way that that horse could arrive at that moment. But you're not supposed to think about it. You're just supposed to go with it. Mel Brooks does stuff like this in some of his other movies, some of the other movies that you haven't seen. So I won't give you any spoilers. But even in Spaceballs, like when they watch Spaceballs, the the videotape in the middle of Spaceballs, the movie, that's just a, a thing that Mel Brooks likes to do. These characters are aware that they're in a movie. So it's fine. Also, the whole thing that the Mademoiselle rescues her father from the Bastille and then goes back to the palace to, like, say thank you to the king. That's why she's there at the end. Like, that doesn't make any sense. She would have rescued her father and then just left. Why would she go back to the palace to, like, say thanks to the king? That's pretty stupid. I thought she went back to warn him that the uh, revolution was coming. Even still, why would she bother? He was, like, going to extort her. Because he saved her father's life. And she realized he was not a bad man. And maybe even realized this was not the same guy as, as earlier. Eh, still seems like a stretch. But what? Possibly. Um, I mean, you can't talk about History of the World Part 1 without talking about the uh, epilogue there. You know, I think it's weird, the three uh, vignettes he chose for the epilogue. Two of them made sense because he chose, uh, quote-unquote, modern and future things. He chose the 20th century, uh, see Hitler on ice. And that's just, you know, instead of Hitler on the move and, you know, the end of, uh, you know, Berlin 1945, it's literally Hitler skating around on ice. So there's the gag there. But then he goes back a thousand years to a Viking funeral, which I thought was weird because he had already done the early 19th century with the French Revolution. So that that was kind of weird to do. But uh, then, of course, he ends on, we, we mentioned earlier in the in the podcast, but uh, Jews in space. And you have to put a little Star Wars reference in there. And it's kind of funny. And Jews in space is basically the same song as Men in Tights. He recycles the song. It's pretty much the same thing. Also, like that space theme very much sounds like the Spaceballs theme, I thought. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it is very similar. Uh, the pew, pew, pew. So that's History of the World Part 1. And, you know, who knew 40 years later they'd be working on a Part 2. We will have to wait and see how that goes. But um, what did you think of uh, the first part of this epic uh, tome, Al? Does History of the World Part 1 stand the test of time? I mean... As a comedy, some of these jokes land and they are very, very funny. A lot of the jokes don't land. I thought that some of these gags were just really dumb. 
You know, they're just like not that funny. Like the way that they escape when they are being pursued in ancient Rome is uh, Gregory Hines' character rolls a big joint and then like the smoke makes everyone distracted so they don't keep chasing them. That's not that funny. Like Mel Brooks is funnier than that, I think. There's just a lot of shtick in this movie that didn't really land for me. That said, it's making fun of history, and I think that does still work. Like, you can't say that, like, oh, making fun of ancient Rome doesn't stand the test of time because it's 40 years later. Like, no, you're you're going back a couple thousand years, so it's fine. I don't think I love the movie. I don't think it's a classic I will say that it stands the test of time kind of just barely because it's making fun of history and enough of the jokes are humorous. Even the ones that aren't that funny, even the ones that aren't laugh out loud, you kind of will just be like, oh, yeah, that's kind of clever. (laughs) So I'll say yes, even though this is not my favorite Mel Brooks movie. What do you think, James? I loved Mel Brooks from Spaceballs. So when I saw History of the World Part 1, I do remember being somewhat disappointed that it was not the, you know, bam, 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 you know, hit after hit that Spaceballs is. And I agree with you that it has funny parts. There just really aren't enough of them. There's some stuff that I would say is quote-unquote politically incorrect, but I would say they're all within the realm of, uh, you know, Mel Brooks, and that's the kind of humor he does. There's one joke about marriage in The Caveman where he goes, This started the first marriage, which was followed by the first homosexual marriage. For the heterosexual marriage, he hits the woman over the head and drags her into the cave. And then for the gay marriage, he hits a man over the head and drags him into the cave. It's the same exact gag. Right, right, right. I was cringing for something that was going to be like, oh, no, don't do a, you know, an 80s gay guy joke. But no, it, it wasn't bad at all. It just, it's just a lot of penis humor and uh, the Moses gag. That's hysterical. I really think in this case, you could probably just go on YouTube and watch some five-minute The Best of History of the World Part 1. You're going to get all of it there. And I'm going to kind of judge this one not on does an ancient Rome parody stand up. I'm going to judge it more on I just don't think the movie is very funny and I don't think I'd recommend this film. Someone who has not seen this film, I don't think the next day they're going to be like, James... Oh my God, thank you so much for recommending that film. I don't think this one really hits. Hopefully part two is a little more uh, broad in its humor, not just like a little, you know, sexual puns. But uh, for me, it just wasn't that funny. And I'm going to say it does not stand the test of time. It's really hard for me to argue with you. I very easily could have said no. I kind of don't know if I was right to say yes, to be honest. I feel like it was just barely a yes, but I can't really argue with you on this one. Are you going to watch the sequel show right away? You know, it's vignettes, so it's so easy to just watch a little bit of it. But if the first one or the first two are not funny, it's going to be hard for me to find that, you know, episode four, third vignette that is absolutely hysterical. So I hope they edit it well to hook me in the first episode. Fair. I think there's enough really funny people involved that it's got to be funny. Like, I mean, honestly, if it's not with all of the amazing talent that they have, that would be kind of shocking, actually. You have Nick Kroll, Wanda Sykes, Ike Barinholtz, 
Pamela Adlin, Danny DeVito, Rob Corddry, Kamel Nanjiani, Sarah Silverman, JB Smoove, Taika Waititi, David Wayne. Like there are some big, big names in this. If they fuck it up, I would be very, very disappointed. But that's going to do it for us this week. Next week, we are going to be talking about our very first Wes Anderson movie, Wes Anderson's very first movie, Bottle Rocket. Have you ever seen that movie, James? No, I've never seen it. Um, I've seen some Wes Anderson films. I have not seen his entire catalog, but I'm looking forward to seeing this one. And is that the only Wes Anderson film we'll be covering? No, no, no. For episode 350, we're going to do Rushmore, which is a movie I've really, really, really wanted to do on the podcast for a long time. But I felt like we couldn't start with Rushmore, like we had to start with Bottle Rocket. So we'll do those two movies back to back for episodes 349 and 350. I've only seen Bottle Rocket once many, many, many years ago. I'm looking forward to rewatching that and then watching Rushmore the following week. So... As always, we want to hear from you guys. We are at Tested Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Let us know what you think about Mel Brooks and the history of the world and the history of the world part one and part two and what should be in part three. I don't know. I assume it's going to end with the preview part three. I hope it does, which they never make. They also could do Jews in Space in part two if they wanted to do like a Marjorie Taylor Greene joke about like the Jews space lasers. Or maybe that's too obvious. That might be too obvious. I think they're going to do some reference to Jews in Space. I think that would be criminal if they did not make any reference to it specifically previewed as being part of part two. Get Seth Rogen, get Sarah Silverman. There are certain comedians in Hollywood that would be super into playing a a Jews in Space role. Very, very possible. But uh, all right, we'll see you next time, everybody. Bye. Bye.